Listening to Rock and or Roll, part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. I'm BJ, and we're continuing with the Power Pop series. On this episode, I present to you interviews I conducted with Coleman York, who was the drummer for a Canadian power pop band called The Numbers, who released one of my favorite power pop records of all time, Add Up, in 1979. They then changed their name to Hot Tip pretty drastically changed their sound and put on an album called Stop All Motion. And that record has its moments, but nowhere near as good as numbers add up, in my opinion. And after we hear from Coleman, we will hear from Graham Hammonds, who goes by Kidder. He was a member of the incredible Kidda Band, or the Kidda Band, or the Breaks. They had a few different permutations. Kidder actually played percussion and sang background vocals. It was actually his brother, Alan Hammonds, who wrote the songs and played guitar and sang vocals. So Kidaban never released an actual LP, just a couple of singles, but there are two different CD compilations that you can get. One is called Too Much, Too Little, Too Late. That was put out by Detour Records in the year 2000, and it's a two-disc set, and it's really great. And the second one, which came out in 2014, is called Made in England. 14 more songs by the incredible Kidda Band. And as you will hear on this episode, a lot of great songs from this punky power pop group. So let's hear from Coleman York, and then Kidder. I would love to hear the story of like how the band formed and how you developed that sound, you know? Well, myself and, and uh, my bass player, uh, Ed Blocky, we were in, uh, I would say, kind of a rock and roll band uh, in the early 70s. We were young kids at that time. And our uh, roadie, one of our roadies, who used to pack up... Uh, the guitars and drums and everything after the show for us, introduced us to a couple of guitar players that he met in 1972. And uh, the bass player and myself went down to see these guys uh, at the guitarist's home. And they just started playing for us. Uh, It was just two guitars. There was no vocals or anything. They just started jamming away. and, And the song that they were playing was Sideways Elevator. 
which uh, later became our single on our on our first album. Um, there was no lyrics, but it was just the, the guitar riffs and the speed and the power uh, just threw us back, and we we loved it. We left. Uh, me and the bass player said, "Now we got to get with these guys. They're very good guitarists, great writers." And that's how the numbers was formed, and that was 1972. The album itself wasn't even recorded until 1979. So for for all those years, we just sat in the basement and wrote music, and uh, we didn't really play live much. A couple of Christmas shows, uh, but uh, it was really 1972 when we met. But 1978-79 is when we started to actually uh, get noticed and uh, when we came out to play uh, the very first show that's when we got signed <laughs> attic records was in the audience uh, they had heard about us and uh, that was the story <laughs> next day we're up in their office signing a contract <laughs> oh wow after your very first show yeah so it, it was kind of funny. Yeah, I mean, first show as far as playing in front of uh, a big audience, you know, like mm-hmm. I said, we did three shows here and there, but uh, th- this was, uh, you know, our first club appearance. It was a club where a lot of new wave bands were playing. So, you know, I guess uh, the record companies wanted to hear what this was all about. Uh, power pop, if, if you want to call it that. You know, when you asked me what I thought of the term power pop, to me it meant, um, you know, it was a mix of three different types of music. It was like the Beatles meeting Deep Purple and the Ramones. <laughs> right. It it had uh, the, the heavy guitar riffs, it had the speed and the power, uh, really driven by, uh, by, you know, big guitar riffs and Mack truck type drumming, <laughs> just... You know, but when we used to play, you know, everyone would get up and dance from the first song to the last song, and that's the type of, of music it was. 
just get you out of your seat. Believe it or not, our album was very fast. If you listen to it, the songs were very fast. But when we played live, they were probably double as fast. <laughs> the faster you could go, the harder you could play, the better it was. Right. It's interesting that, you know, you form in 72 and then in between the time that you start the band and the time that you put out a record, so much happened. You know, that's when punk rock and new wave and all of that happened. And yeah. So yeah, that that's what's the weird thing about power pop is that it's there's a lot of like you said the Beatles, there's a lot of it that's a throwback to the 60s, but it also mm-hmm. but you also have experienced everything that happened in the 70s. So obviously that's also an influence. So yeah. Um, I mean my influence for sure was the British invasion, but uh, when I used to sit and play my drums by myself, I would play to Led Zeppelin and, you know, Black Sabbath, <laughs> stuff like that. So Alice Cooper. Uh, and then I, then I play a, a little Richard song. So, you know, all, all of that, like you said, all that, you know, maybe decade of music all came out in our band. Right. Yeah. One band that I kind of hear in some of your songs is, uh, the flame and groovies, especially like, uh, can't take it and get away the ones that are a little slower and more have more dynamics i guess right yeah it's funny you said that because i've heard that before (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah
You know, we, we were we were very well liked, and uh, you know, our first album that was just released in Canada, uh, which was a numbers album. We were just a Canadian band at that point, and then uh, the album did quite well in Canada and certain parts of the U.S. and Europe. And you know, I, I see the album coming out of France and Germany. I don't even know how it how it got there because it was never distributed there. Right. Um, eBay. <laughs> and then. Yeah, eBay, and uh, and then when we went to do the second album, there was a big change within the band. You know the uh, the direction we were going. We actually got heavier. I don't know if you want to still call that power pop or power rock, but uh, it became heavier. And uh, you heard the uh, Hot Tip album. Yeah, but the story behind that was. Um, we actually had the album under the name The Numbers, and two weeks before it was released, we had to change the name. The record company called us in, said, we got some bad news for you. We thought they were going to drop us. <laughs> they turned around and said, we have a, a cease and desist letter uh, about a, an Australian band called The Numbers, and apparently they're charted, so we can't go out worldwide under that name. And uh, the second album was picked up by CBS Records, which is going to be a worldwide distribution. So we changed the name two weeks before it was released. The album did good, but uh, didn't do great for, you know, the 10 years that the numbers were around and built up an audience and a following. And, you know, the, the name change really hurt us. Yeah. It is a very different sounding album, especially like the vocals. The vocals are so different, like a different style. Right. Yeah. So yeah, that that uh, must have been, was that like a conscious thing? To change the sound? Yeah, it was. It was conscious. Um, the The main writer, which was Peter Evans, a guitar player, and uh, 
wanted to go a different route, um, kind of like the Hot Tip album was a concept album. If you listen from the, the first song to the last song, it's about a person going through his life. So kind of like uh, what The Who did with Tommy, kind of a concept album. So yeah, it did change. We had a different producer. Uh, we got away a little bit from the la 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 poppy sound of the numbers and went much harder when we did the Hot Tip album. Okay, so uh, it's yeah. kind of like it's a more serious. He was taking it more seriously, like making it a concept yeah. album. Yeah. Yeah. And with the new producer, uh, also, you know, the, the sound changed. And, and also, you know, technology from the first album to the second album. Uh, the sounds were much bigger. Right. It's a more reverb and stuff like that, right? It's like a like yeah. bigger sound, yeah. Bigger sound and uh, probably even more uh, guitar-driven, more vocal. If you, like all of us were singing on the second album, there was four singers, so a lot of harmonizing, a lot of backup harmonizing. Uh the song Stop All Motion was very different from from the uh, first album we did. A lot of people are annoyed by categorizing stuff and you know applying genres to it and that kind of thing but from my point of view I, w- I wouldn't really call the hot tip album power pop necessarily but you know it's hard to, to qualify yeah no like you're, you're right you're yeah. right it, it probably the numbers album was much more what you would call power pop yeah and um yeah we I don't even know where you would stick the, the title of the second album. I, I don't know what genre you would put that under. It was, it's just a mix of so many influences. Yeah, yeah and, it really is. Uh, the two main writers uh, were on the same page for the Numbers album, and when we, when we did the second album, there was a big split in which way the band was going to go, so you hear a lot of different influences on that second album. By the time we sat down to do the third album, uh, the band split up. So, just one of those things. Well, you're listed as a co-writer on probably the two best songs on Add Up, uh, in my opinion. Yeah. 
Yeah, that that was the lyrics. I just wrote lyrics. Mm-hmm. Uh, I never wrote any of the music. It was probably a big part of because we all sat and when we wrote the music, you know, the guitar player would come in with a, a riff and you know, I added drum beat to it and it was a collaboration. But I I never read and and wrote any music myself. It was uh, just the lyrics on those two uh, songs. Sideways Elevator is one of my personal favorite of all power pop songs, pretty much. And uh, you said that's the first thing you heard when you met the yeah. guitar players. Yeah. Was it yeah. that yeah. fast? Was it, or has it? What did it yeah, speed it, up over time? Or uh, no, it was that fast. Wow. Like I said, when we went, when uh, myself and the bass player went up and heard that, it was just so different and so powerful. And it was just, uh, it was, the whole song wasn't even written yet. It was just the, the main chorus and, and that, you know, the intro. Yeah. Um, but it just, uh, you know, gave me goosebumps when I heard it. You know, where that came from, I don't know. It, it just, <laughs> it just appeared. And we, we went for it. We loved the sound. And uh, that's the kind of music we wrote in that album. I mean, some of it's really poppy. You know, like "Won't You Call" and songs like that. But uh, yeah, "Sideways Elevator" was was really the song that that made uh, the band who we were for the numbers. We would we would open the show and close the show with that song. It was very popular. A lot of airplay in Canada. Right. Yeah, like you said, you don't know where it came from because in '72, you know, when you when you talk about power pop. The, the names that come up as the early bands are like Badfinger, Big Star, the Raspberries, mm-hmm. stuff like that. And none of that is, the, is as, well, I guess some Badfinger, but that, that tempo, like Sideways Elevator is very punky. Like almost, that's what's, what's, you know, like sometimes when you're drawing the line between punk and power pop, it gets kind of blurred, <laughs> you know? No, 100%. We played... Uh... With a lot of, we actually opened for the Ramones a couple times, and but we did we opened for a lot of obscure punk bands when we uh, first put out the album. A lot of the Jane County. I don't know if you ever heard. Uh-huh. It was a, a he, which <laughs> was a she. Yeah. 
afterwards. Um, yeah, we played with a lot of punk bands, and uh, and then we then we would open for the Ramones, and we played uh, we toured with the Romantics, which was a kind of poppy sounding band like us. Yeah. But it's funny you bring up Badfinger because Garth Richardson, who produced the album, uh, his father was Jack Richardson. I don't know if you heard of Jack Richardson, but uh, he produced Badfinger and Alice Cooper, Bob Seger, The Who, Peter Gabriel, uh, Randy Bachman. So he was there pretty well every day when we did the album, and he was a big part of the production. Um but it's funny you said Badfinger because I guess you might hear a little Badfinger on the Numbers album, you know, that kind of feel. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so was that one of the first things that Garth produced? It was the first album Garth produced. Wow, right. And he he became a big name himself. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so he was there and, you know, father popped in like i said you know pretty well every day you know he sat in the background but when you know sometimes when he heard something or he wanted to say something he said it and you can actually hear jack richardson on uh, a couple of our songs but predominantly the uh, the copy we did from the dave clark five bits and pieces he did a a, a vocal track in that. okay we walked we walked in one morning and he goes, guys, listen to what I did last night. And uh, he put the track down when nobody was even in the studio. <laughs> and we kept, <laughs> you know, going into the studio was something else too. I mean, the first time, you know, you put those headphones on and you play the drums or you just listen to the music through in a studio. It's just unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. 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 And then, you know, you listen back to it and you go, wow, is that me? <laughs> right. Yeah, the record so, does it, sound great. It sounds like Jack was kind of mentoring or almost training Garth as a producer. How old was Garth at that point? Garth was young. Yeah. Jeez, uh, he was young. Probably, uh, you know, early 20s. Mm-hmm. Maybe even younger, maybe even 19, 20. Yeah, he, he was young. Yeah great guy we loved the guy it was a lot of fun to work with yeah it was his very first album i was curious on how you you got the numbers album how did that how did you get that <laughs> yeah that's a i mean that, that's an old album yeah that's, that's a that's a funny story it was in like 98 i was in i was living in austin texas at the time and i went to rec some record stores in san antonio Texas Mm -hmm. and uh one place I went in was what I would call like a head shop it was like one of those places that just reeks of incense you know like and they sell a lot of different they say the pipes are for tobacco (laughs) you know but you know what they're really for and in like the back corner of that place it was like behind the shelf I remember you had to move like a curtain and there were literally cobwebs back there there were some records <laughs> and right. and uh the you know this was before the internet so my knowledge of stuff was like from i would was collecting old trouser press magazines and stuff like that and so wow. i knew some names 
And uh, one of the one of the ex most exciting things I found there were the only ones. They had all the only ones records, which were wow. they only came out in the UK. And at that point, before the internet, it was like really difficult to find stuff like that. So that was a huge deal when I found those. And then in that same, it was it turned out those records were the guy who owned the place. That was his record collection, and they were just selling them there. And uh, wow. And, and yeah, I found another one of my favorite Paul Prep albums ever was the Sorrows Teenage Heartbreak. That one was there too, and the and the Numbers record was there. And I don't think, I don't think I even knew what it was. It just looked like I would like it, you know. So I just <laughs> I just bought it with the rest of those. But it was just that that guy that owned that place, he had collected them, you know, at that point, like almost twenty years earlier. My wife, uh, we weren't married yet then, but she was with me, and that's a funny story because <laughs> there were so many records there I wanted, but they all had like these crazy price stickers on them, and I, there was no way I could afford all of them. But I also couldn't leave the store without them, so I carried them up to the register, and I just sat there and begged the kid <laughs> that was working there to give me a deal, and he <laughs> he finally gave in. And just said, fine, just $4 a piece and get out of here. <laughs> and I, I managed to walk out of there with all those records because I just couldn't leave without them. It was such, I, I was in such a predicament because I didn't have enough money, not even close if you looked at what the price stickers said. <laughs> but I couldn't leave yeah. without them. It was, uh, yeah, so that was that was how I got it. And then, yeah, you know, I was just so blown away. Because I was in the power pop then, but like I say, two of my favorite records, period, are The Numbers and The Sorrows, and I got both of those at that store, and then also getting those Only Ones records was a huge thing at the time. So um, it was a very memorable story for me. So yeah, so I've had it since like 98. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. A, wow. Yeah. Yeah, it was such wow. a different world before the internet collecting music like that because, you know, you just had to happen upon it a lot of the time, and oh, you yeah. never know, yeah. you never knew where you were gonna find it. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, we we were we were kind of unlucky because we we did the album. CDs weren't even out yet. It was just uh, an yeah. album, or you get a. What do you, I can't even remember the name of it. Yeah, like a cassette player, <laughs> a cassette. Yeah, yeah. And, I um, that was the the way I got the first the, the way I first got the Hot Tip record was off of eBay. I I bought the cassette that because that was one where I could never find it, and I was always looking for it on eBay, and it was never on there. It, it's funny because it's on Spotify. I couldn't yeah. believe that one. Thought it's like really, so old. yeah. Yeah, this was like the early 2000s when I got Hot Tip, and the first thing that showed up on eBay was a cassette, so I bought that first. I have it on vinyl now, but um, oh, great. <laughs> I originally had to buy the cassette <laughs> so I could hear it. Yeah. Yeah, that's great.
We came out just before MTV became big, and we missed that whole thing, you know, uh, CDs, MTV. It's too bad because that might have helped us out a lot. Uh, Being from Canada, you know, we didn't get a lot of exposure up here. And uh, it was very hard to break into the U.S. because there was, you know, there was other bands that sounded, you know, in the same music frame as us, and it it was tough to break. So yeah, we missed the bit. We missed our big chance. <laughs> Were you aware of like Bomp Records and the, the stuff, the other similar stuff that was going on at the same time? Oh, or? oh, a hundred percent. Yeah, sure. We had a battle of the bands, which was on the radio here uh, on one of the stations, Q one hundred seven. Played a lot of that music, and we were uh, playing against the Jam. Yeah, so we were right in the middle of that. We actually beat out the jam which we excited us we were very excited about that <laughs> yeah they, they were a great band but yeah we were, we were like i said we were put in with a lot of different bands nobody knew what what to call us or where to put us new wave was really the term that people used because nobody heard of us before nobody knew what we were playing but i believe that it was power pop but what what is new wave you know how do you categorize that there's so many influences in there. It sounds like you were saying you weren't, nobody knew what to call you or how to categorize you. So you didn't feel like you were like part of a movement or, or anything like that? Or No. Matter of fact, when we got signed, we got signed to a, a record label called uh, Attic Records. And they didn't even know what to do with us. So they started another label called Basement Records. And that's uh, that was our first release with the numbers. So the first year uh, we came out under Basement Records. <laughs> they just didn't know where to put us. They didn't want to put us in with their, you know, they were doing bands like Triumph was their big band on that label. Have you ever heard of Triumph? Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. So that that was their big band in those days, and uh, so they didn't know what to do with us with that music. So they started the new label. You know, they had attic and then basement. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I I think I've had one other record that was on basement. I think it was Johnny and the G Rays. Yeah. 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 There was a few. There was a few bands after us. We were the first ones, and then there was uh, another dozen or so bands that came out under that label before they they just got rid of the label and moved everybody up to attic. The numbers album, I think. The total amount of records that were pressed were only about fifteen or twenty thousand copies, and then then it got deleted. So there's not a lot of them out there. <laughs> it was funny that you got one. But, <laughs> yeah, I uh, just got lucky. Sometimes I just you know looking it up to see if anybody's still buying that, and 
you know, I just saw one the other day from Germany for thirty four ninety five Canadian. It's funny how it got around, but second album, Hot Tip, was uh, we did much more. We did about forty or fifty thousand of those. But like I said, the band split up. We weren't touring. We weren't supporting the album, and, and that was that. That was uh, about nineteen eighty, the end of nineteen eighty two. The band split up, uh, reformed again as the Purple Hearts. The, the main writer, which was uh, Peter Evans, he was no longer in the band. And um, we went back sounding more like the numbers, I think, uh, which would have been our third album, <laughs> funny right. enough. so Yeah, I guess I can't think of a lot of other Canadian power pop. Like, I love the pointed sticks, but they're a lot punkier. Mm-hmm. Well, have you heard of Teenage Head? Yeah, oh yeah, they're kind of a punk yeah. too. Yeah, but yeah, it's they true. were they were poppy punk for yeah. Papa. I don't know how you want to call them either, but we we did a lot of shows with uh, with those guys. We played with a band, um, open for a band called Clatu. You yeah. ever heard of Clatu? Yeah, I love them. Yeah, <laughs> we played with Doug and the Slugs from uh, that's from the west coast of Canada. Right. So yeah, it, it seemed like. The whole time we were in existence, people still didn't know what to call us, where to put us, <laughs> who to play with. You know? Well, that, playing with the Romantics was a good match. That was a and the room. I mean, yeah. you obviously would have gone down well with Ramones fans, I would think. Yeah, we did. We did very well with that, um, and with the Romantics, we played uh, a big outdoor stage with the Romantics. Uh, it's called Ontario Places. I had a big round stage and it would actually turn. So throughout the course of the concert, it would probably move about, rotate maybe 10 to 12 times. So you had people sitting all around you. So, you know, there was people sitting behind you, beside you. It was great. Did you ever come play in the U.S.? You know, no, we didn't. Uh, We did. Actually, we played a couple of shows in Buffalo. That was it. Right, right. It's about an hour and a half away from from where we are in Toronto. Now, like I said, it, it was it was very bad. The, the name change really hurt us. We were we were just starting to to want to go into the U.S. as the numbers, and the second album was being released in the U.S. and and the name change just uh, took everything out of it. So we had to go out as Hot Tip, formerly the Numbers, and it just didn't work. <laughs> Right. Um, we also had uh, a big break when we were going to open for The Who in Toronto. And it was one of the very first worldwide concert where they were, where you could listen to it on your FM stereo. Um, and they were, you know, it was going to be filmed. They had TV cameras there. And it was, uh, was a big show that The Who did in 1984. Oh, sorry, 1982, I think. Um, just before our band split up, and um, we we were uh, on that show, we were on that bill to open, and uh, again, just uh, about a week before we were to do the show, they canceled all the opening acts because they they didn't have space on the stage because of the TV cameras. Mm. So there was just a lot of highs and lows. You think, wow, this is going to really break us, opening for the Who worldwide simulcast, and. Uh, Boom. A week before the show, they they cancel you. So, yeah. 
but it was a fun time. You know, I, I'm 63 years old now, and I think I was uh, 25, so it was a long time ago. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it was just funny hearing from you the other day when you got in contact with me. At first, I thought, is this guy for real? How <laughs> <laughs> did get my I did get my album in Wisconsin. Like, wow. Yeah. We didn't even add one there. <laughs> yeah, I actually bought said, it in Texas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you bought it in Texas, which is even more funny. But I don't think I've ever seen it again, ever. You know, and and I've done my share of record stores and record shows, and I don't think I've ever come across it again because if it was reasonably priced, I'd probably just buy another one. <laughs> so, um. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh I just happened to find a guy who had a really cool record collection who was selling it at his head shop. <laughs> so that's how I ended up with it. But uh Well funny enough we you know, I, I still I still have the uh, original tapes from the studio here with me and uh many years ago, um I I went into a, a studio and uh, we redid the album, re- remastered the album on a CD. So I, I actually have the album on a CD now. <laughs> right. But, yeah. You know, even even CDs are no, no longer being used that much. You know, everything is. Uh, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, but, now you'd you'd be better off uh, reissuing it on vinyl <laughs> nowadays. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Going back to vinyl, but who knows what. With all this technology, you know, everything's changing so fast. I know. Are you still in yeah. touch with the other guys? Uh, only one. And uh, that, that was, uh, he actually didn't join until after the first album. But he was still part of the numbers. But uh, he was in that transitional time between the numbers and uh, Hot Tips. So he's actually on the Hot Tip album name is Colin Gerard, so I'm still in touch with him all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, Peter Evans, who was the main guitarist, uh, I had seen once or twice over the last 20 years, but not a lot. Um, and the bass player, I don't even know if he's still alive, but I've been trying to find out where. where <laughs> I just can't seem to contact him anywhere. Right. So, yeah. Anyways, thank you, man, and uh, hopefully we'll talk again soon. Okay. All right, thanks. Take care. Okay, bye. He's frightened. He's all alone. He's only just a young boy. He's so confused. He's lost his mind. He thinks he's gonna die. Listen to him up.
Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late, and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make, and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well, I could make a run to the store, or I could make one of my new factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything Factor Meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor Meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain again with something every podcast listener and music junkie needs to hear. As I'm sure you can guess, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I also listen to a lot of music, so having high-quality headphones and earbuds are absolutely critical to my day. Oh, and I have numerous pairs. In fact, I have a junk drawer of used devices that have bitten the dust, so I've tried them all. Recently, I was sent a pair of earbuds by Raycon, and the first thing I noticed was the cost. Uh, Looks like their products are about half the price of other premium brands. Okay, that's cool. And the reviews seem pretty stellar. Okay, checks that box. So I got my Raycon Everyday Earbuds, a nice packaging to open, and what I immediately noticed were the pack of ear tips for sizing. Uh, I'll tell you, I have small ear canals. Uh, I know, a flaw. So to see choices for the best fit, uh, especially while exercising, oh yeah. And yes, they were immediately comfortable. Sound quality was great too. Plus I have three EQ options that I love because I like more bass in my music and less in the podcasts. Eight hours of playtime for the battery is great as well. Surround sound, noise canceling, and awareness mode all included. I think I'm in business and I just realized I've had them in all day. Like I said, super comfortable. Go to buyraycon.com slash Pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash Pantheon. about the timing of it it must have been right around when your compilation came out in 2000 that somebody sent it to me because i used to trade a lot through the mail with people and i I probably got a cassette recording of it at first i have the cds now but um just loved it so much it was one of those you know you one of those as i was 
as I was discovering more and more stuff. And that's one thing that always blows my mind is these pretty obscure or undiscovered things, you know, that the average person obviously doesn't know about that is just yeah. as good or better than anything that's more famous, you know? Yeah, and yeah. I think that's what a lot of people don't realize is there really is so much stuff out there that's just as good or better as whatever <laughs> ended up becoming popular for whatever reason. Yeah, it's. Um, I'm a big believer in, um, you know, it's talent gets you so far and then often it's pure luck yeah. from there on. Who you meet, yeah. who you deal with, you know, what they do. If you if you sign with someone, what do they do? How good are they at what, what they do? You know, and, you know, I, I've always said we were one we were probably one support tour away from doing something, you know, but no label ever put the money up for that one support tour. You know, we, we slogged out ourselves around live, usually went down really well. You know, there's the occasional bad show, but you know, that's life. Uh, we normally did pretty well, but you know, we just needed a bigger, a bigger crowd, you know, we could spread the word, but at, in small numbers we just needed a bigger crowd to spread the word and we just never got that so so i think that was pretty much you know the the missing piece of the jigsaw i think from then if you start to spread the word people are more inclined to put some money in you know but everybody's a little bit cautious but you know it's 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 easy looking back but it, it was frustrating at the time more than anything you know yeah, well, just the songs are so great uh, that, <laughs> yeah, like, like I was reading about how you you wanted to put a record out with Career, if that's how you pronounce that label. Yeah, Career. It was Career. French, yeah. And yeah. and I was thinking, if that record had just come out, <laughs> it would be so great to yeah. have in my collection. And it's just really disappointing. I've I talked I've talked to a few other people for this series where there was a record that just almost happened but didn't. You know, and it's yeah. really disappointing to think about some of these records. Like I talked to John Tiven. Um, he had a band called Pre P R I X. Right. They were he he knew big he knew the guys in Big Star and stuff, and you okay. know they were so close to a record deal, and they almost had a record that would have come out in like the mid seventies. That now would be like a legendary thing if it had happened, and it's so frustrating to think about those records that almost happened and didn't you know <laughs> yeah it's it's frustrating it's you know it's kind of the the follow-on from what i just said then i guess you know yeah if you know if they'd have done if they'd have put a bit in for a support tour you know there'd have been a bit more interest if if they then released a single they'd a bit more sales and if there's a bit more sales they get a bit more confident they put a bit more money in and it's like you know, but you can't convince them, you know, they've got to want to do it. And, and we, you know, I mean, as you can see, we, we had a ton of songs, yeah. you know, lying around just like waiting to go. Um, and you just wouldn't, you know, just wouldn't go over the line, you know, it's just frustrating. But, well, but I mean, at least, you know, with uh, detour records in the, you know, in 2000, yeah. They came and they came and found us in, in oblivion. 
Um, and, you know, at least we got a record out in the end just so people, you know, people could actually hear what they hadn't, unless they saw us live, hadn't heard, you know, stuff that had been sort of lying in boxes on studio tapes and stuff that I'd carried around for years. Um, so it was good just to kind of get something out. So it became real rather than, you know, well, it could have happened. It never did. And that, you know, it ended, ended there, but at least it kind of came to something and more and more people have kind of got into it, you know, through that record. So we're like incredibly grateful to, to Dizzy Holmes at Detour for uh, tracking us down and just having the faith to put it out. So, so that's, it kind of worked out okay in the end, but you know, it would have been nice to have done it when we were young and eager to, to get something going. But Yeah. Well, what's interesting to me is, is where you fit in, in terms of there was the pub rock movement and that kind of yeah. morphed into punk rock. And then of yeah. course, after, and then there's the whole new wave and kind of power pop thing. And yeah. Kidda Band is one of those bands that kind of fits into all of that, really. Yeah. Um, yeah. It seems like you were early enough to kind of be coming off the heels of pub rock, at least. Yeah. And you definitely, a lot of punk elements, but the songs are so catchy and melodic that it, to me it's closer to power pop. Yeah. I don't know how you feel about all these different labels and things. Um, how do you yeah, feel? Well, what do you think of the term power pop? I like the term power yeah. pop. I don't, I don't have a problem with it. I mean, a lot of people seem to really struggle with it, you know. Mm -hmm. And if you say, if you say, well, I think that band's power pop, you know, it's like you're you're dissing it or swearing at it. You know, it's I don't have a problem with that phrase at all. I think you're right. We we were a bit of everything, you know. We had lots of influences. We had, you know, heavy, we liked heavy rock, some of us. We, you know, Black Sabbath, Led Zeppelin, you know. So we liked, you know, rocky, loud guitars. We liked glam rock, you know, T-Rex, Slade. We loved Slade as a live band, fantastic live band. And then, you know, we liked later, we, you know, with The Clash. We, we kind of went across the lot. But I think in that, in that period where we were trying to come through, it was very, it was kind of fad focused, you know, I mean, in the UK, we had Scar, the specials, the beat, we had New Romantics, you know, we had all these little uh, styles of mu music, which record, you know, one person would start to have a hit and every all the record labels were trying to sign somebody like them. And we didn't, we kind of didn't fit in any of them, you know. We we were a little bit of that, and we were a little bit of this, and a little bit of something else, and so we never we never really fit a trend. So we, nobody ever thought, you know, they're the what we want that, you know, which kind of worked against us in a way. But I think you know I, I don't mind the term power pop, but I, I think you're right. We, you know, we're quite rocky in places. You know, we're very, I mean, Alan's songs, very melodic, very catchy. You know, you, you hear them a couple of times and you can't get them out of your head. So we had dual guitars, you know, lead sort of riffing guitars, a bit like Thin Lizzy from Heavy Rock. You know, Alan was has always been a big Rolling Stones fan, Tom Petty. So the the range of influences was quite wide, but that just fed into the, 
the mix of of the songs you know any it, the next song could be anything you know it was it, there was no real well this is at the sound we want we're going to stick very closely to this and we're going to write songs around that we just he wrote a song he brought it in he started playing it and then he might say do you know that bit needs a bit of the rolling stones or something you know and the band just kind of worked on it from there really so we, we were as you said a, a little bit of everything we, we didn't quite we didn't quite fit fully in anything, which is not a bad thing. It's just no. It's yeah. just were, were you a band before the punk thing started happening? Or yeah, we 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 did. We started off in about seven to seventy six, probably. Mm-hmm. You know, very early days. We were doing stuff. You know, I mean, you'll know there'll be bands. You know, wherever you've lived, do do. You know, do that. They'll do a pub or, you know, a club, a bar. They'll do, they might do a couple of their own songs, but they do a lot of, you know, stock, you know, standard rock or pop stuff. And we, and we started off like that. You know, we did, we played places uh, for the money really to get us up and running live. And then we were started writing our own songs. So we were up and running before the, the punk thing. We were playing live, you know, quite a lot before that. And then the punk thing came along, you know, there, there became more venues to play really as a result of that. And so, you know, we, we took, we, we made use of that ability to play in more places. Did you play a lot of, a lot of punk shows? Did you play with a lot of punk bands? We did. We played with really bizarre stuff. We played with the the English beat as, as America knows them, which were a sort of Mm -hmm scar band and then we did we did bad manners we played with the pirates we did a show we cut the shows with the radio stars who were kind of punkish right um and then we did you know like real wide the other way like real pop acts like you know bizarrely things like the bell stars and stuff like that in london but you know not not big names that you would know and probably others i've forgotten now over the years but we never did you know we never did big punk shows because it, it we weren't punk in in effect you know we had that we had the element we had the a lot of our songs were fast but you know it wasn't wasn't necessarily 30 you know 90 seconds and it was over you know it was a it was always a 3 minute pop song it wasn't it wasn't truly pop you know new um new wave probably a bit more of that you know a bit more a bit more mainstream side of punk maybe but but so we didn't do any we didn't play any shows with like the massive big punk bands okay yeah i mean you would have fit i, I especially if you look at these songs these 77 songs like radio caroline i love that song
I mean, if you would have been put on a bill with the vibrators or the buzzcocks or whatever, you totally would have fit right in to that, yeah. I think. Yeah. Yes, definitely. I mean, the buzzcocks probably were possibly, you know, if you were looking at that sort of punkish style, they were probably the nearest to us because their songs were very melodic, always had a good chorus, you know. That's a similar sort of thing. So, yeah, I mean, we, we could have done those shows. It wasn't that we turned them down. You know, we could have done them. Yeah. Um, and we'd have been we'd have been fine at it. You know, we did do, we played a lot of punk, you know, venues. And people were coming along thinking we were a punk band, you know. So we did those venues and did well. People, you know, people liked us, liked the stuff because of the energy we had, you know. And as I said, some of the songs were quite fast. And, and Caroline, I mean, classic. I, I love Caroline, one of my favourite songs. I just love those two guitars. But you know, you could step back and say, "Well, it's Thin Lizzy." Yeah, that's like you. And like you talked about glam rock. That's I think uh, there's a lot less separation between glam rock and punk rock <laughs> than people pretend. You know. Yeah. Well, I think glam rock. You know, it, a lot of the the bands influence punk. Yeah. You know. Got, got them going so you know mark boland did a lot he had a he had a pretty not a great tv show on in the uk but um towards the end of his you know towards the end of his career really i mean he may have come back he was starting to get a little bit of success again with some of his singles but you know but he had he had all the the bands on you know he had generation x and loads of others on this show and all the all the guest artists were all, you know, what people would have considered punk then, you know, because they all loved Mark Boland. Most, you know, most of them loved Boland, so, you know, they were a big influence from glam. So there wasn't a. I always thought there was kind of a. I mean, I don't know if it just goes to the Sex Pistols or not, but it seemed like a lot of the punk rockers, even though they probably loved Slade and Sweet, they didn't. They couldn't really admit it at the time. <laughs> yeah. You know. <laughs> Yeah, a lot of it come, you know, a lot of it came out later. You know, yeah. they, they they got up and running, and then once they started to have a few hits and a bit of success, they started to admit who they liked. Yeah. But you're right, you know, at the beginning it was, you know, it was the we're we're tired of the boring old guard and we're we're here to do something different. So that was the message that that was they were all pushing at the time. But the reality was that you know most of them had. A lot of the guys they were they were being not too polite to. They had their records at home, you know. Well, yeah, yeah, I know. Like Johnny Rotten was very mean to Pink Floyd, and now he's like, I totally loved Pink Floyd, <laughs> you know. So, yeah. yeah. Well, so uh, I mean, you've probably become aware over the years of like the power pop cult that is out there of all the collectors and and yeah. people who are. So do you, have you have you discovered a lot of fans? Have you had a lot of contact over the years from people who are just huge uh, power pop collectors? Yeah, yeah. It. I mean, you know, going back to the detour thing, when that we you know when he came looking for us to to do the record, we thought he was mad. You thought, you know, this guy's he's insane. Why, why would he want to put our stuff out? You know, it's 30 years old. You know, he's mad. And then he started to, you know, we, we got we got working together. And then he, he was saying, you know, if you guys ever, if you got back together and went to Japan, he said, you would be huge. They are, <laughs> yeah. 
they said they're just going crazy for you know everybody knows single and we were going but it's terrible you know this we love the song that it's just the production and we don't like the production on that song and we were going how the hell do they know about that song in japan you know and then um when the cd came out it was obviously it wasn't just japan you know people from america and and europe were were desperately getting hold of it you know buying the vinyl and when detour said we want to put a vinyl out as well we were going <laughs> vinyl died you know <laughs> yeah. why would you want to put vinyl out but that sold out first right so it was all it was all very strange to us at the time because you know we didn't know there was that that market there but but it became very obvious very quickly and over the years you know when people buy things you know, I, I sell from uh, the band website and stuff. And when somebody buys and then I I'll might just write and say, look, you know, thanks for buying. You know, how did you hear about the band? You know, and occasionally some people just can't believe it's me writing. You know, it's, it's very strange. But yes. And then, you know, the more you dig around and you look at the, the Facebook power pop groups and people, you know, coming up with names I'd, I'd not heard of and you know and i'll give them a listen i think well god you know they're really good as well you know and so and they had no success either so but yes there's a definitely a, a big you know scene for for want of a terrible word you know there's there's clearly a big uh, collector's thing going on in in this in this market you know this area of music so yeah, it's funny that so, <laughs> you so didn't you think it. there would be any interest, and then, yeah, yeah, because you know, I, when I first heard it, I just flipped, flipped over it, you know. That's so, and and I know there's a lot of people out there like me who, you know, if you're if you're into <laughs> like the whole list of stuff we already talked about. think of heavy metal you know when i hear that career records it's to me it's a heavy metal label which yeah that's probably mainly because of saxon i can't even think of what other yeah. records i even have on that label but, yeah yeah we signed pretty much the same time as saxon yeah and uh the difference between them and us was the career put them on a support tour with motorhead mm-hmm and then they were gone, you know, they were off. Yeah. Um, and we would, we thought, right, you know, now 
because as I said, we were pretty much, you know, we were both kind of northern bands. We were both pretty much, you know, focused on, you know, doing our stuff, whatever that might be. And we we really just needed the same promotion as each other. And we both probably would have done very well, you know. And we saw it happen for Saxon, but we just never got that tour. And it, so it never happened. But, yeah, they're, they're a very strange record label because they're a French, but they... Um, they opened the office in the UK with a guy called Freddie Cannon, who was an old sixties, an old sixties rock and roll rock and roller. Yeah, he had a, he had a couple of singles in the sixties, I think. Really well respected in the business, and has gone on and done tons of stuff. And I mean, he ended up he ended up heading up like like one of the major music organisations. He was head of a couple of the major record labels as well. You know, and then he he opened up the record label here, but they really didn't release anything, which was weird. It was Saxon, it was us, and they had a couple of like weird one-off singles, and they had a band called Cloud who did the song called Substitute, which one of the heavy metal bands ended up doing, I think was. But they didn't really release much, and so it's a bit of a strange, strange label, really. But they were tied to Warner Brothers, so they had a big, lab, you know, a big, big multinational thing behind them. So they seemed quite attractive at the time, shall we say? Right. And then you were kind of locked in with them then for a while. Yes, we had. Um, I can't remember if it was a th- like a three or four single deal, you know, and they released the first one. Didn't seem to show a lot of interest in it. Of course, we were keen to keep getting them out, you know, to to kind of get try and get something moving. They took a long time to get the second single out, and then by that time, you know, things were were not massively great between us. You know, on reflection, you know, maybe we should have been a bit more, um, what's the word, a bit more uh, patient with them. You know, when you're when you're young and and you just want to crack on and do stuff, it, it any sort of delay just seems as a somebody's getting in your way to doing what you want to do. So, uh, but yeah, so we we were stuck with we were stuck with them for a while until they decided really they didn't want to do. You know, we said, well, look, if you're not going to do these singles quickly, then you know we'd like to go you know and so i think they got fed up of us keep saying that so they said right well you you can go and then you end up changing the name to the kicks and uh that that song um if looks could kill that's my favorite that is a masterpiece of power pop that is such a great song
And you guys must have been happy. I know you weren't happy with some of your recordings, but that you must have been happy with that rec- how that recording turned out. I hope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, that that's that is probably our best recorded single in terms of how we feel about it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but but yeah, I mean that's a that's a good song. Oh, it's a good amazing. Song, you know? <laughs> it's yeah. yeah. Yeah, lots of um, lots of people. You know, I, I like to say to you know people, well, you know, what's your favorite? What, what tracks? You know, what what are your favorite tracks, if any? You know, and and that one's a fairly regular. Caroline's a, a fairly regular. But yeah, I mean, great song. It's a it's an earworm. You hear it a couple of times. You can't stop singing it. That session was was one of the the better ones in terms of of recording. A lot of the other, a lot of the, the other recordings we love were stuff you know we recorded in rehearsal, and uh, myself and the roadie out in the van getting the levels on this you know the live mixing desk with the cable straight into the you know recorder, and then we get it all ready. Then I run in and we start playing, and the roadie presses play, and and it kind of runs, and we do four or five songs. And there's some of the better sounding stuff. You know, it's it's bizarre. Yeah, you could tell. Uh, you you could tell that, that songs like Major Tom and Radio Caroline are probably just straight live record, like live in rehearsal recordings, right? Not really overdubs or anything. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, a lot of that early stuff on there were were just live recordings in re- in rehearsal. How did the the change in the name to the Kicks come about, and and then how did the If Looks Could Kill single get released? The the name change, I guess, was you know was to try and was to try and freshen it up. You know, we we'd been a, we'd been playing live and doing stuff a while. We'd had a couple of singles out, which didn't really do much. Not so much start again, but just try a, a fresh you know, a fresh angle, really. And we always, you know, the one, I guess the one good thing which kind of kept us going was we always had, we always had record company interest. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't the majors, but there was always, there was always people around who, you know, wanted to work with us, you know, so that, that was quite positive. The If Looks Could Kill, VC Records was the, the label of a, a guy called Roger Bain, who actually was the producer of Paranoid by Black Sabbath. Well, 
Al loved Paranoid by Black Sabbath. So he was, you know, he was well impressed that this guy was interested in his songs, you know. Mm -hmm. And he was really positive and really and, and really up for it. So, you know, he said, look, I really love your stuff. You know, I'd love to give it, you know, give it a go, get, you know, get a single out and see what's what. Um, and he loved that song. And he said, you know, let, let's do this single and see where we go. And, and we got a, a little bit of radio play with that, but but not enough full stop, really, not enough to really make any difference. I don't to be honest, I can't honestly remember. I mean, it was a, it was a one single deal and he, and he probably didn't take up an option to do more. But I, I don't actually remember what you know what happened there so i kind of guess that just tells me it, it didn't move any further the, you know he didn't fall out with us we didn't fall out with him we liked him you know he liked us so it was probably just because it was his you know he was a he was a one guy putting his own money in i guess he doesn't you know he, he he thought it was worth giving it a go and then you know it didn't happen so he, he moved on, you know, he went, did something else. I don't know what, but. Well, that's the thing I think but, came out in 81. And that, that's really the tail end of the, you know, if you look at the, the reason I don't have a problem with the term power pop is because I think there's very clearly something was happening in this short window of a few years where there was this whole group of bands, similar yeah. style, similar sound, so many bands that yeah. obviously, Something was happening here, and it—you can't really call it punk. New wave is just kind of this all-encompassing term. But I mean, to me, there was clearly a thing happening, and I don't see why there's a, a why it's a problem to, you know, kind of apply, uh, uh, give it a name, you know, because there was yeah. something going on. Yeah, definitely. And um, and yeah, and Kidaban definitely fit right, fit into that. But 81 is about when it was all kind of petering out and then, you know, moving into the 80s, uh, it's going to be a lot more synthesizers, much more very different production. You know, there's, yeah. there's going to be a period there where bands like yours were just not going to get much attention at all once you start getting yeah. 82, 83 kind of thing. Yeah, well, it was then, it was the... All of the all of the nightclubs were were getting the you know the Duran Durans and the, they were starting to play those kind of venues small you know cliquey venues and yeah it was you know our sound really didn't didn't fit then yeah. at, at all so you're right I mean I mean you know you look at bands I mean the Beat or you know the Beat in America what you know great album that first album. What an album, you know, yeah. fantastic. You mean and, the the Paul Collins band? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's one yeah. of my favorite albums ever. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. What an album. Yeah, you know, and and we we had a guy who um, uh, a guy called Mike Davis who did publicity for us, and and a lot of it he did it as a favor. You know, he was getting paid by other people to do publicity for them, and so. He liked us so he he really liked us a lot and he came and see you know, he came to see us whenever he could and he and he helped us out. He did he did some uh, marketing for us. But he used to um he used to do reviews in some of the music papers and stuff. So he used to get a never ending supply of records through to review. 
And uh, he used to say, well, look, you know, just come round, you know, grab a handful, take them away and then bring them back when you're done, you know. And so lots of that American stuff, which we would never have heard, he got to review, you know, it's like 2020, the yeah. beat. Yeah. Um, and we just loved those albums. You know, we thought, brilliant. You know, these guys are going to be huge over there, you know. And yet they weren't. It's <laughs> just yeah. bizarre, bizarre. And yet the Knack were, you know, which which I kind of find a bit odd. But, you know, that's how it goes. It goes back to my thing at the start, you know. You get to a point, you got great songs, you look good, your life, your life sounds great, and then look kicks in, you know. And if you've got it, you're in, and if you haven't, you're out, you know. Are, there, are the Knack multi-million sales better than the beat, you know? No, they're not. No, yeah, that's that, that's one of the weird things about power pop is the the knack had this insane success, which resulted in a lot of bands getting record deals, but it yeah. didn't really result in any other bands having hits. No. And it's really strange that how fat, how meteoric the knack's rise was, but also how fast the fall was, and yeah. they didn't really have any coattails to ride. people who try to write songs but they just don't really have i think there's there's a lot of this kind of natural talent that you need Um, yeah anybody could try to write a song but not everybody can write a good song right and then (laughs) there's certain people who obviously have a special kind of knack for writing a great song and obviously your brother has that yeah Oh, red light, you're 
be back.